am, I am kind of obsessed with a particular Christmas movie. No, it is not Die Hard. Uh, no, I don't even want to start a debate in here this morning. Uh, no, it is not Home Alone. It's not It's a Wonderful Life. This might maybe is like such a pastor answer, but it's, a, it's for real. It's the nativity story. Uh, I don't know how old it is. It's, it's, it's over 10 years old probably for now, by now. Have you seen the nativity story? I love how they did this movie. It portrays, uh, like, I just like the way they did the story, and I especially love the way that this movie portrays the relationship between Mary and Joseph. I had never quite seen it that way before. Uh, the birth of Jesus, uh, for so many people, is such a familiar story, and um, I think seeing it on screen helps us to, to visualize it in fresh new ways, of course, as long as it's done in a non-cheesy way, because no thank you, obviously. Um, but I love the way the Nativity Story did it, because it really made it come alive to me. And if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. I would not recommend it for small children, because it's a scary beginning. Herod is a super bad dude in this story, and we sometimes forget about that, and they, they kind of tell a piece of that story, too. So, uh, But uh, to me, in this Nativity Story version... Um, Joseph is a standout character for me. He is so sincere in how he cares for Mary. He's willing to take her as his wife under the most unusual, difficult circumstances. He's willing to become a social pariah for God's plan and for her, and I just love it so much. Uh, and now I can't read Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew's birth narrative without picturing scenes from this movie. I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing. Maybe, I hope it's a helpful thing, but um, just because it, it's so delightful to me, I'm gonna share just a little bit of it with you. Watch this with me. You guys just want to watch the whole thing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I got to tell you, I, I, I edited a lot of videos that were putting that together. It was like 17 times longer than that. And I was like, Tracy, control yourself. You have to just edit for Sunday morning. I just, I, just, I just love the portrayal of that, just bringing that scene alive. But let's read what scripture, obviously some of that's extra biblical, uh, but let's read what scripture says actually about this story. Um, Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 25. You can grab this. Um, it's going to be on the screen for you. You can open your Bibles or the YouVersion Bible app has it loaded up for you. Um, under more and then events, it's there. You can search for it there. So Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. There's a little spoiler alert here, by the way, in the NIV. It starts with, Joseph accepts Jesus as his son. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. 
So this was a really, really big deal that he gave him the name Jesus. Because when Joseph names him Jesus there in verse 25, what he's doing is he's formally acknowledging Jesus as his son. Jesus is no longer illegitimate because Joseph is in the line of David. So if you're actually, if you're still in, in your Bible there, at the beginning of chapter 1 in the book of Matthew, there's the whole lineage that he, uh, of how we got from David to how we got from David to uh, Joseph. So Joseph is in the line of David, and this is a big deal. So what happens is because of this, when Joseph uh, formally says, "This I will, I will, he can have, I will name him, I'll give him this name." Now Jesus has become legitimate child, and now he is a, Jesus himself is now a son of David, and of course the son of God. And those two things together, being the son of David and the son of God, means that he is the rightful king, the one that the Jewish people and unknowingly the whole world had been waiting for to come. This story also is really cool because, um, do you want me to move that? What was like, don't, uh, don't, so, don't do it so close to your face that you can hear the peas and the, there we go, that's a little better. <laughs> uh, this story gives us really great insight into engagement and marriage in the Jewish culture, which as you can imagine looks a little different than it does today. So there was a phase of engagement that it was, was not the same way that we use that word. Um, a matchmaker or parents uh, chose a spouse for uh, their children when they were often very, very young. Um, I just saw Fiddler on the Roof on Friday and if that is a context for you, I'm struggling to not be like, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. But I won't. I won't do it. I'm just telling you how I'm struggling. Okay? But this is legitimately what would happen in this culture, of course. A matchmaker, sometimes at a very young age, sometimes a little older, or certainly the parents would agree on a match for their children. And then there was the, uh, the phase of betrothal. And so when that couple who had been matched were, then would become formally betrothed. And at this point, uh, this is, doesn't, isn't forced upon a girl. The girl was, uh, if she was unwilling to go through with the marriage at this point, uh, she didn't have to become betrothed. But once she did, and once they made that decision, that was an absolutely binding agreement, the way that we think about marriage. The couple is then known as husband and wife, and that betrothal, that agreement, could only be terminated by divorce. But they don't live together as husband and wife. There's still a time period be before that happens. And this is the phase that Mary and Joseph are in, which is why they call each other husband and wife. They're considered husband and wife, even though they are not actually living as husband and wife yet, but they were in this binding agreement called betrothal. And then, of course, the third stage would be the, the marriage proper, uh, and that, that would be at the end of probably about a year of betrothal. Usually in that time, the husband is preparing the home to bring his new wife into, often an extension on his parents' home or something like that. And so in that scene, you see that Joseph is, is doing just that. And so at that end of that year, the husband takes his wife into their new home, and then they are formally married at that point. So this is, this is what's happening. This is the cultural scene that's being set for us. But of course, in verse 24, after Joseph receives instructions from the angel of what to do, it seems that instead of waiting for that one year of betrothal to be over, uh, Joseph thought, or maybe he assumed that that's what the angel meant, whatever, whatever happened. He, he decided instead of waiting for that year, because we don't think that probably a year had elapsed, Instead of waiting for that full year of betrothal, it would be best for Mary to bring her home as his wife and therefore be able to protect her properly, considering the situation that she was in. 
And in doing this, of course, as, as, we, as we just saw too, he was implying to the community that he was the biological father of her child. And so he took on, by doing this, he took on and shared the burden of Mary's disgrace in her community because he understood that that was no disgrace at all. And I know that, listen, in our Western culture, we have very romantic ideas about what love is. Love is a feeling of butterflies in the stomach. It's, a, it's that overwhelming feeling of almost obsession with another person where you fall in love and all you want to do is be with that person and that's the only person that you can think about. And, and simply put, love is considered to be such a deeply emotional experience in our culture. You can fall in love, but that means you can also fall out of love. That's weird too, right? But that's how we, that's how we think about love most often. This is not how scripture defines love. In scripture, love is uh, defined as a choice to put someone before yourself, to seek the good of someone else, to do what's best for another person. It's not described with emotional language. It's, it's described with attitude and action-oriented language, like 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, which is, of course, a very famous a passage of scripture that we love to read at weddings for, for good reason. And it's a beautiful definition of love that tells us that you love by serving and forgiving and being sincere and telling the truth. You love by laying aside your preferences for someone else. You, you love by being patient and kind and not jealous or boastful or proud. You love by honoring and not being self-seeking or easily angered. It says that love rejoices in truth and not evil. It protects, it trusts, it hopes, it perseveres. It's a lot packed into a couple of verses. This is the definition of love in scripture. So in other words, Going on a fancy date with my husband is great. And I hope he loves the birthday present I got for him. Happy birthday on Tuesday, Rob. Uh, that's your present. I just said it publicly, no. Uh, I hope he loves like, the present or the gestures that, that we, you know, we have when we love someone and give them a, a nice gift or whatever. But really, he will know that he is loved by me when my actions and my attitudes toward him sound like those verses in 1 Corinthians, not by those other things. Uh, I was a teenager in what I like to refer to as the golden age of the rom-com, the romantic comedy. Um, the romantic comedies in the 90s were absolutely epic. Like, they were epic, and I don't, like, I don't know why we can't write good rom-coms anymore, but that's just true. Sleepless in Seattle, Ever After, this is one I want to watch on the Christmas break here, Notting Hill, like, come on, there was so, I can't even, I couldn't even, I couldn't even pick to make a list for you from the 90s rom-coms. I mean, I couldn't wait, I, I couldn't wait, I'm a 15, 16, 17-year-old girl, couldn't wait to fall in love like that, to find my soulmate. And all the things, and all the feelings, right? All the things, the big romantic gesture, to running to the airport, don't go, like, or whatever. Like, I just, don't, I don't know what you men, I don't know if this is like a gender thing, but girls, you know what I mean. Like, this is what I was looking for in my life. I, uh, I want you to know that before I say the next thing I'm going to say, I asked my parents' permission. Just want to put that out there, in case you think there's going to be awkwardness in the room since they're here. And in that context, as a 15, 16, 17-year-old, I was about 17, I think, when this happened. 
I remember feeling so bad for my mom <laughs> because I had never seen my dad do anything romantic. He is just not that guy. He would buy her carnations for their anniversary every year. And even that I found unromantic, because carnations are a practical flower that just lasts longer. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if, I don't know if she loves carnations. I forgot to ask her if she loves carnations or it was just they lasted longer. So why would we get the roses that die in three days? Like, whatever. And I, that's the only thing I'd ever seen him do that was, like, traditionally romantic, ever, was the flowers on the anniversary, the same flowers for every anniversary. How very sad for her, I thought. So I decided... <laughs> She swears she doesn't remember this, but I vividly do. I decided one day, as a 17-year-old kid who knows things now because of all of my romantic comedy experience, to confront her with the sad truth of her life. <laughs> and I said to her, Mom, it's just really, it, I, it's really, don't you ever feel sad a little bit that, that Dad is so unromantic? Like, you know, like, you just like that's never like that kind of like romantic stuff that never happens in your life. And then she told me something. If you know my mom, you know it's gonna be good. She told me something I have never forgotten. She said, and, and I paraphrase, so a lot of years ago, it's true, your dad is not traditionally romantic, but I'll tell you, he is godly and kind. And he loves us and he sacrifices for us, and he is just simply a good man. And that is so much more important than any romantic thing that you can see in a movie. That stuff fades. This stuff matters. Amen. Right? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I was put in my place just a little bit, as a 17-year-old should be, right? They will be celebrating 49 years of marriage in February. And I do mean celebrating. I don't mean surviving or enduring. I, I really do mean celebrating because this is what love actually looks like. I don't think my mom's actually a particularly romantic person either, so whatever, but as a 17-year-old, it was just, <laughs> I needed to learn a couple of things. And I'm actually not, I, I tell that joke, I tell that story with a little bit of joking, but I really am not dismissing romantic gestures or scoffing at sappy stuff. Some people really love that. You're wired for that, and that's totally fine. Some of that is really nice, especially if that's the kind of stuff that you love. It's beautiful and should be enjoyed. Let me just be clear. But those things should be an outward expression of what's going on inside the heart, never a substitution for it. You can't light enough candles or buy enough fancy dinners to cover over a selfish heart because that's not love. What's going on inside of you is what love really looks like. And this is what catches me about the story of Mary and Joseph. The Bible teaches us that love is proven in actions. And with that definition, Joseph truly did love Mary, choosing not to expose her to public disgrace, even when she seemed to break his heart. We don't know what he felt towards her. Was she pretty? Did, he, did she make his heart go pitter-patter? Like, I don't know. We don't know. Like, we don't know any of that. We, don't, we have no idea. What we do know for sure is that he laid down his life for her, his pride, his reputation, his hopes, and his dreams to serve her and to protect her child. To me, that is an incredibly beautiful display of love. Advent is a season about anticipation and longing waiting for what is to come. And each Sunday of Advent has a theme, as you probably know. Last week was hope. This week is love. And as the Jewish people 
longed to be rescued from Roman oppression by a Messiah, by a savior, they were waiting for a display of love that they probably wouldn't have even known how to define. But Jesus says it best himself, in, recorded in John's gospel in John 15, 13. He says, this is what it, you were waiting for. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. They didn't need to overthrow the government or any other ultimately superficial thing that wouldn't last. Anything they could have longed for, they didn't actually need. They needed someone to lay down their life for his friends. They needed someone who could make a difference in their spiritual lives for their eternity, not just for their present moment. They needed someone to set them free from sin and death and to give them victory that would last forever and ever, not just in this current political moment. And that's what they were given in Jesus. And that, of course, friends, is what we also have in Jesus. Throughout human history, there has been story after story of God's loving kindness towards us. His character is revealed in the Old Testament as being slow to anger and abounding in love, great in faithfulness and mercy. And then Jesus comes on the scene and, and takes all of that and then becomes a perfect display of love, of what true love really looks like. True love was shown to us perfectly for the first time in human form. The love that the human race needed was given through, found in, and on display in the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. His love was what we had been waiting for, even if we didn't know it. And I say we as humanity, but certainly in this context for the Jewish people. What's interesting about real self-sacrificing love is that when it's received, it actually turns our emotions and affections towards the person that we are receiving it from. My 90s rom-coms teach me that love is a feeling that I need to try and keep to stay alive. But what my Bible teaches me is that love is a verb and those actions that put someone before me actually fuel my heart and my care for them and vice versa. Those feelings of love that we're so quick to run after to try to um, demand from other people for us is actually something that we are receiving from the Lord so that we can pour out into the lives of others. It's very different than what the culture would teach us, it looks like. Jesus doesn't teach us that we, we uh, should be just kind towards the people that we feel love towards. You feel affection to someone, so you should be nice to those people. No, his command is to love everyone knowing what it will produce in us, knowing that it will produce in us a heart that looks like his, that's full of grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness. In fact, I, I just read that John 15, 13, the verses surrounding that verse are clear about what we are to do in this context. Verse 12 says, my command is this, love each other, as I have loved you, in verse 17, this is my command, love each other. What an invitation. We needed to know what true love looked like. We were shown it in Jesus. And now, we are to follow him in the way of love. 
truth is, though, that, of course, that some of us feel like we have never experienced love like this. Some of us have been really hurt in relationships. And so our hearts are really focused on self-protection. Like, I do not want to get hurt again. It's kind of been the story of some of our lives. It's understandable. There's no shame there. It's just true. Sometimes that happens to us. Some people have a hard time trusting and being vulnerable with their heart, with loving others and, 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 and expressing love to others because of how your life has turned out so far. It's just not a, a something, vulnerability is just not something you're willing to do. Some, some people just continually find relationships struggle and, and find that they're always just failing and they're just unsure why things in life just can't just actually just be okay for a little minute one time. Why does nothing ever work out for me? Some of you have given up, assuming that whatever you have right now is all that there is and what you have experienced as far as love is concerned in your life is as good as it gets and that's just how it's going to be. But I would just really love for you to hear me say something else to you today if, if you find yourself with a heart that's really struggling with the idea of love. The thing that you have needed and longed for is available to you today and every day with no cost and with no strings attached. The thing that you are longing for is not something that you earn with enough points, as powerful as Pastor Tracy points are in the world. They mean nothing. <laughs> you can't earn enough or do enough good deeds or whatever it is to be able to purchase what you really need. You, you can't even, regardless of what those 90s rom-coms would tell me, you even can't get lucky enough to find that in another person, the thing that your heart longs for. If I just found the right person, that soul-filling, security-building, safe, knowing love of God is what you're actually looking for. And I just want to tell you, if you've never heard this or you need to be reminded, that it is yours. That, that Like again, that it's that soul-filling, security-building, safe, knowing love of God is yours to receive freely right now and every day of your life. How do I know that that's true? Well, first, it's on display in the entirety of Scripture. <laughs> It's God's love that compels him to write a story of redemption from the brokenness of sin and the certainty of death. It's God's love that sent his son to do what we couldn't do. And it's the love of his son, Jesus, on display from his birth to his ascension that gives us an ultimate picture of how much we are loved. It's just written all throughout the word. It's everywhere that you look. And so the little kid's song, of course, comes to my mind. I had somebody say to me recently, uh, oh yeah, we were visiting some friends in Edmonton last weekend, and, and, and my friend Rochelle was like, 
is it just here or do you just burst into song everywhere? I'm like, oh, it's everywhere. It's not special for you. I just, I don't, that's how my brain works. That's how my brain works. But here, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm considering this and I'm like saying, listen, the, the love of God is on display in the entirety of scripture. And I was like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. He is strong. We teach our kids this. The Bible tells me so. Do you guys know the second verse of that song? Mm, it's pretty good. No, that's the chorus. We're going to get there. Don't you worry, Angie, but we are getting there. Second verse of that song says, Jesus loves me, he who died. Heaven's gates are open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let the little child come in. Isn't that nice? And so what do we know? Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. There's a reason we sing that song to little kids. And we see it so simply and powerfully in the first moments of Jesus' life on earth, after his conception. His adopted father, Joseph, choosing to love Mary and trust God with his new family, to do what was right and to serve them without regard for his own reputation. This is love. This is love. So I know that the love of God is real and available because I can see it all through Scripture. The Bible tells me so. But I also, of course, I know this love of God is real because I've experienced it for myself, as so many of you have. And in fact, I will tell you that as I continue to trust my life to Jesus each and every day, I have experienced that he fills me with everything that I need. Not for his sake, he's good. He's got everything. <laughs> but for my sake, because that's the kind of, that he just, he, he just loves me like that. So he pours into my life the thing that I need, that security, the filling in my soul, the identity that I'm looking for. He pours these things into my life day after day after day. And he does it for my sake because he loves me so much and he does it for the world that he loves so that I could walk in this world full of the things that the world is looking for so that other people could actually find out the same truth that I've been so privileged to know. That the thing that I've been waiting for and longing for and looking for is all found in Jesus. God, let my life be a display like that for everybody to see. Maybe you feel like, You've been waiting for love, waiting for your own happy ending, for things to be all right again. Maybe you've given up and then you've just decided, I don't even worry about me. I'm just going to survive this life. I'm here to tell you that the wait is over. It's been over for a long time and you're invited to it. If you've been waiting for love, what you have really been waiting for is Jesus. So maybe this season, for the first time, I want to invite you to receive this love for the first time and celebrate Christmas in a whole new way. 
understanding that you have now a relationship with the God who loves you and came to rescue you. Rob, why don't you come? Some of you have known the love of God for many, many years. But sometimes circumstances in life can, like we prayed about earlier, can be, <laughs> can be burdensome. We walk around with, with heaviness and we forget how much we are loved and cared for. We forget that everything we need for life and godliness is found in our knowledge of him. We forget that we don't have to chase what the world chases. We, we, forget, that, we forget that all of these things are given to us as we trust our lives in Jesus and we need to be reminded that all of this is available to us not because we earn it or deserve it or even get enough points to buy it in some way but simply because we are so loved by our Father on display through Jesus and all that he had come and done for us. So that's the message of love this Advent season. Okay. Okay. I recognized it from those first two chords. I want to... See how distracted I get with music? Like, it's just, you guys just, if you're new here, just welcome to my life and my brain. Everybody else has gotten used to it by now. I want to take a minute and invite you to just reflect on that. If you're considering Jesus and you're trying to figure out who he is and whether this, like, he's, like, what this is all about, I want to invite you uh, to come and talk to me or Pastor Aaron, she's in the front row, Pastor Ethan's here too. We'd love to chat with you about what it means to follow Jesus, what we've been talking about. And if you need some time, especially if you're off campus, you can go to freedomkw.com slash life and learn what it means to follow Jesus and connect with us about that. It would be just our delight to walk through that with you, especially this Christmas. Maybe you are longing for this love I've been talking about. It is available to you. Let us pray with you and, and, uh, and chat with you about that today. But for those who have known this love, why don't we take a moment of worship and reflection. Invite the Holy Spirit to remind us and show us and fill us again with, that, with the love that is nothing like the 90s rom-coms, but it is everything that we actually need. Identity, soul-filling, eternal love. Come on, let's stand together. Let's reflect as we worship, inviting the Holy Spirit to speak, and also thanking him for this great love.